Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to The Culture, where we talk about the things that really matter. And I'm happy we can get back to albums you must listen to. Here's our third. Uh, we've looked at Joni Mitchell and her seminal album, Blue. Uh, we've then moved on to Marvin Gaye's great soul concept album, What's Going On? And today we're going to look at The Birth of Folk Rock, The Bird's Mr. Tambourine Man, one of my absolute favorite groups. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm easily bored by menial tasks, and so I listen to an awful lot of music to get me through the day. And so when I'm washing dishes, which is my household chore, chained to the kitchen sink, or when I'm shaving, another thing I find incredibly boring, I listen to music every day. And more often than not, in the course of listening to the music, at least Spotify will kick up a bird song, because I think they're one of the absolute most underrated bands Ever. A whole generation of bands followed in their wake, uh, taking folk rock to the next level along with the 12 string Rickenbacker guitar. And if you look at people in their own era and times on, the birds immensely influenced popular music, in some ways, almost the equal of the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones in terms of their influence, though their popular heyday was much shorter say 1965-66, and the golden period of the birds is 65 to 68. But the turtles, Simon and Garfunkel, the Love and Spoonful, the Mamas and the Papas, the Jefferson Airplane, Love, Big Star, Tom Petty, R.E.M., and the Laws. Oh, by the way, I love all those bands, so at least I'm consistent. All were directly influenced by the birds. And indeed, you can argue that they invented folk rock. The Bo Brummels were messing around with folk rock at the same time that they were. The Beatles and Dylan, of course, are the great fusion, but it's the birds who really make it happen and deserve pride of place for having invented folk rock. And if there's any one album that really typifies this, it's Mr. Tambourine Man. They're almost never bettered first album. It's hard to think of anybody who ever did a first album that was as important, influential, and just plain fun to listen to. You have to go back, though, to the foundations. Um, and again, the Beatles and Dylan were as influenced by the birds um, as, they, as they were influenced, um, as they influenced the birds. They worked both ways, and they all knew each other, which, of course, helped with the dissemination of ideas. And indeed, you can really look at the beginning of folk rock if you watch the great documentary of Bob Dylan coming to London, D.A. Pennebaker's Don't Look Back. There's a scene where McCartney and Lennon are sizing up Dylan and they're all young men trying to out-peacock each other. And at one point, the gist of a conversation is that, that Lennon finally gets around to asking Dylan what he thinks of their music. And he's in his Dylan-like way dismissive and says, well, you know, it's he damns it with faint praise. You know, it's very easy to listen to. The harmonies are lovely. But the words, man, they don't mean anything for you. And the words are everything, says Dylan. And of course, this enraged the highly competitive John Lennon, who went on to make the words mean everything as well. And this fusion of folk music, which Dylan had made again with his revolution of folk music, but was still a pretty esoteric college bandy kind of experience. And the Beatles, with their pop music, their gigantic success of the British invasion, which they spearheaded, they're the Omaha beach of the British invasion, but it took the birds to take it that next step and really fuse together incredibly interesting harmonies and pop culture sensibilities with the fact that the words matter, man, to quote Dylan. 
And it's that fusion that to me is most interesting in all of rock and roll. The idea that you can have a good time and say something. And that's an idea that I put into my own speeches, my own writing, that you can have a great deal of fun and still say something profound. And that's why I love folk rock and the birds, because they managed to do both in really an, ama an amazing way. And that's why we're going to talk about Mr. Tambourine Man, really the unbettered first album of the birds. The birds went on to have another number one album. Their next album, the follow-up Turn, 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 is a beautiful record. Um, slightly less poppy than Mr. Tambourine Man, but a beautiful record, which has the other seminal number one hit, Turn, 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 their version of Pete Seeger, putting the book of Ecclesiastes to music. Uh, but between Pete Seeger and the second album and Bob Dylan and the first album, they made, you know, they made Dylan go electric before Dylan went electric just a few years later with Like a Rolling Stone. But the birds added some of their own sensibility and uniquely did so. Most importantly, Jim McGuinn, their leader, uh, soon to change his name to Roger because he became, yes, it seems odd that a man would change his name from one boring commonplace first name, I'm a man who's named John, from Jim to Roger, but this was because of his sabud, which is an Indonesian religion he got interested in and so changed his name. But Jim McGuinn, as he was known at the time, is the best player in history of the 12-string Rickenbacker uh, guitar, uh, which is a very different kind of instrument from a standard guitar. And the first album, if it's known for anything, is McGuinn's mastery of the 12-string Rickenbacker, as well as the band's incredibly complicated harmonies. But the 12-string uh, gives you a very different sound than a six-string guitar, which is the normal kind of sound of the time. And we'll talk more about that as we go, but it's that unique sound, that jingle-jangle sound that uniquely reminds you of the birds. I mean, Tom Petty, um, as, a, as a pastiche and homage to them, would often begin some of his better tunes with the 12-string Rickenbacker, uh, reminding you of where this comes from. But the jangling sound of, of the 12-string the Rickenbacker of McGuinn and the really complicated harmonies of three of the great singers of the era, Jim McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby. Um, one of the things that I'm heretical about is that I like all the, the precursor bands to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, more than Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, meaning I like Crosby's initial band, The Birds, better. I like uh, Graham Nash's The Hollies, better, a good British beat band. And I love uh, Stephen Stills and uh, Neil Young's Buffalo Springfield, better. I think the bands they came out of are even better than the music they make together, which is good but overrated. But to me, I know some of you are going to be throwing things at me, but I think these precursor bands are, are even better. And this album is really characterized by McGuinn, Clark, and Crosby at the top of their game on the most complicated, beautiful harmonies imaginable and Jim McGuinn's jangly introduction of the 12-string Rickenbacker to the world. And that's what you get here. Um, it's um, much more, it has a ringing sound, a ringing tone, the 12-string guitar, much more than the six string and a jangly sound that is unique. And it's almost another instrument. And uh, McGuinn introduces it into the vernacular of rock and roll taken up by people later on, um, like um, Tom Petty, R.E.M., The Laws, Big Star, uh, some of the bands to come out later on that, that really uh, 
pay a debt to, to what, what McGuinn and the birds were trying to do here. But again, they invented folk rock. I mean, it really is the fusion of Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Um, but it's more than that. And you have to look originally at the, at the cast of characters here, which was unique. One of the interesting things about the birds is they didn't much like each other. They were never buddies like the Beatles were or even enemies or frenemies like the Rolling Stones were. Um, they, they got on and played together, but there's this weird distance between them, this emotional distance between them that comes from McGuinn, who is a wonderful player, but rather an off-putting person. Um, and, you know, they come out also of the folk tradition that the band starts with McGuinn and Gene Clark getting together out in Hollywood at the Troubadour Club. And they're excited, along with David Crosby, soon to join their folkies who are excited uh, by Hard Day's Night, the Beatles movie, and seeing the crossover that the Beatles become this pop culture sensation that becomes this just social sensation. And they're excited at the electrification of some of the Beatles songs in the minor key that comes out of Hard Day's Night. And they're all thrilled with the screaming birds and the commercial possibilities, obviously, too, are thrilling to them. And so and so this is part of what's going on here and why and why this matters to them. And this is a big deal in, in the band. And so Gene Clark had been a member of the new Christie Minstrels and McGuinn and Crosby had been messing around with folk music but they saw the commercial potential to move into a poppier direction. And so Clark talks to McGuinn, who's playing Beatles songs on his acoustic guitar and says they should harmonize together. And, and Crosby checks this out at the Troubadour, which in L.A. was kind of the scene for the local folk rock scene. And they begin to work together. And there's a great Birds album called Pre-Flight. If you have a chance, try to find it online. And pre-flight is the birds messing around, getting the sound together. And it's fascinating to see them really grow as they begin to play together. But again, there isn't this emotional intimacy that there was with, with bands like the Stones and the Beatles. They're workmanlike. They have a common goal, but there's this kind of emotional difference uh, and, and diffidence between them, which is why the whole thing shatters rather quickly after turn, turn, turn. Gene Clark is to leave the band. He had been early on. Gene Clark was the songwriting dynamo of Mr. Tambourine Man. The Mr. Tambourine Man is Bob Dylan's songs that the birds cover and originals by Gene Clark. Uh, and initially, Bob Dylan said, you know, Gene Clark's the one to watch. Uh, and he was interested in his songwriting potential. But Gene Clark very quickly uh, fell into a series of, of problems. For one thing, he was carrying on an affair with the unbelievably beautiful Michelle Phillips, which caused all kinds of dissension in the folk rock scene at the time. Of course, she is a lead singer of the Mamas and the Papas, so this is the, this is a source of tension. The other birds later on freely admitted, we were young men and we were jealous of Gene Clark. He was getting all the attention and bigger paychecks for doing the writing. If you do the songwriting, it's where you make the money, as the Beatles and Stones found out. And so he's getting all the attention. And ironically, although he's one of the birds, Gene Clark was afraid to fly. This gets in the way of touring very quickly, along with the fact that Gene Clark was started down the road to a very serious alcohol addiction at the time, which would plague him the rest of his life, along with Michael Clark, the bird's talented drummer. And so all, for all these reasons, it doesn't last very long. It, they're workmanlike. They have the skull, but they don't have the emotional resonance or even hatred that the Stones had to keep them going. They're workmanlike and diffident. And so Gene Clark, after the second album drops out, 
uh, because he says he's afraid to fly and the other birds are kind of happy to give him the shove. He comes back to work later on younger than yesterday, but then leaves again almost immediately. But this classic lineup of the birds really only makes it into uh, 5D, Fifth Dimension, uh, their third album, and he leaves in the making of that album. They only make really cleanly two albums together, this one, Mr. Tambourine Man, and then Turn, Turn, Turn. But here is Gene Clark at the height of his game, really uh, writing some incredibly interesting pop songs right off the thing that complement beautifully what's going on with the covers of Bob Dylan. It isn't just Dylan covers. It's also Gene Clark and Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, the single, Mr. Tambourine Man, goes to number one uh, right away. Uh, their first single goes to number one, and it's the 12-string Rickenbacker electrification of Bob Dylan's classic song. Again, if you're looking out for videos while we're talking, go to the Newport Festival and listen to Dylan, introduced by the great Pete Seeger, play Mr. Tambourine Man. It's just the height of Dylan's game. It's one of my favorite videos ever. And you just, you drowned in the poetry of Dylan. And here he takes Dylan in this wonderful song, they cut a few verses from it to make it pop kind of length, and they add McGuinn's magical playing on the 12-string Rickenbacker, and ta-da, they've invented folk rock. And so the single goes to number one and is a smash hit, um, as will the, the lead single for Turn, 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 uh, Pete Seeger's uh, take on the Book of Ecclesiastes. That'll go to number one. And the album in total in America went to number six and was a smash hit as well. Um, and so they, they vault onto the scene and immediately are seen as America's answer at last to the British invasion because they look the part. And here we come to the other members of the band. We have, we've talked about Gene Clark. We've talked a little about Roger McGuinn and all the incarnations of the birds to follow. McGuinn is the constant. It really becomes later on after the magical period to 68 and then the intrusion of Graham Parsons and country rock, which the birds help invent as well. Afterwards, what the remnant of the band is really McGuinn's band, which is a cover band, which is looked at as well there. So uh, McGuinn is the constant and is, is the virtuoso player, a great arranger of music and producer, a sometime very fine writer. Uh, but we'll only discover that after Gene Clark passes from the scene. Chris Hillman will be a longtime member of the Birds, and he's here. He doesn't even come out of the folk music. He comes out more of the bluegrass movement, and he played mandolin in bluegrass bands. They now make him the bass player because they like how he harmonizes with them, even though he'd never played bass before. But he is going to be a longtime and important member of the Birds who becomes a better and better songwriter as the birds move along in this classic period of 65 to 68. And again, he has room to grow with the passing of Gene Clark as they, you know, he half jumps, half is pushed out of the ship. Um, and then, of course, we have David Crosby, kind of the Ernest Hemingway of, of, of pop music. And by that, I mean, he's a note. Everyone is attracted to Crosby's gregarious, outrageous personality, and he binds bands together, most notably Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He discovers Joni Mitchell, who he has a relationship with at one point. He's the node for an awful lot of these bands hanging out together, spending time together. But like Hemingway, he burns through all these friendships. And at the end of his life, which happened just recently, Crosby, who could be brutally honest, it's one of his more attractive qualities, admitted that he'd burned through every great relationship he'd have, most notably with Graham Nash, his partner in crime, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who was the long-suffering friend who finally said, "I look, I, even I've had enough. But Crosby's on his game here. Sing, you know, he, Crosby can sing the middle harmony part. 
And this is the amazing thing. You know, you can sing the high part to make this simple for people. The high part, the low part, someone's got to sing the middle part. It adds the depth to real singing. And Crosby magically could do this better than literally anyone. He's going to be a fine songwriter. We're going to find this out as the birds move along into Younger Than Yesterday, really at his apex, which is one of my favorite birds albums. But at the moment, he's bemused and enjoying the fact that he's being treated like one of the Beatles. Um, and he, he's playing uh, rhythm guitar, and he's, he has this vital harmonic part. And then we have Michael Clark, who comes along. At the time, he's kind of an underrated drummer, but the reason he was picked is the way he looks. The birds look like a British invasion group, uniquely. Then Michael Clark looks uncannily like Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. So he's looking mod and trendy and cool. They then later on find he's actually a pretty good, pretty good drummer. But Michael Clark, uh, who eventually leaves the band over his struggles with alcohol, which were sadly and tragically to ultimately claim his life, but Clark is this other thing. The birds look the part. They're America's answer to the Beatles and the British invasion in terms of their music invent musical inventiveness, their pop accessibility, but also the look of the time, the fashion of the time. Crosby's ponchos and Michael Clark. Um, looking a lot like Brian Jones, and it's the whole package that really works. Also, the Birds had become the house band at Ciro's, which was an old um, movie star club in L.A. Uh, that became a kind of pop rock hangout, a folk rock hangout, and the Birds became the house band and had their own groupies, had their local following that would, that would follow them around on tour. And so, again, the, the beginnings of kind of a modern pop rock phenomenon all can be seen as evident in the birds who <coughs> have this local following in LA that takes off when, when, when the album and, and the single explode out there. And they're really the first successful challenge to the British invasion and better. They invent a whole new genre of music along the way. Um, their producer was Terry Melcher of uh, Columbia. He was an interesting guy. Melcher uh, was one of the great Columbia producers of the era. He produced other interesting bands like Paul Revere and the Raiders come to mind. And Melcher was the son of Doris Day, so he showed business royalty. Uh, he dated Candace Bergen, among other people. And later on, he gets mixed up in, in the terrible tale of Charles Manson that I'm sure because of my interest um, in the family we'll probably talk about. Uh, Melcher rejects Manson's efforts to become a pop star and the murders of Sharon Tate and her friends at Cielo Drive, that was Terry Melcher's house. That was the symbolism. That's why Manson went there. But this is in the happy days before all this. And you see, um, you know, in 1965, 66, Melcher really, you know, a pro, a young guy who could communicate with musicians but understands the sensibilities of Columbia Records and really helps helm this, this, uh, this record. Uh, by working with the birds again later on with uh, Mark Lindsay and Paul Revere and the Raiders. But right now, uh, you know, he's confidently at the helm of producing this wonderful album, uh, which is where we are and where we see them all, you know, playing together, uh, together uh, in, in perfect sync with Gene Clark doing the writing, uh, though soon to be removed. Um, on the original single, the only one to play, uh, was McGuinn because the band was still getting its act together. So the Wrecking Crew, the legendary backing band to Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds uh, that was constantly playing on literally every mid-60s record you like, 
Uh, you probably are hearing the Wrecking Crew. We had McGuinn playing the 12-string Rickenbacker, and then the Wrecking Crew, and then the Birds merely harmonizing. But on the record itself, despite rumors to the contrary, they did all the playing of the instruments. And the record was completed in April um, 1965. Um, Mr. Tambourine Man, again, is the beginning of folk rock, the song. The complicated harmonies of McGuinn singing lead and then the harmonies of, of um, um, Crosby and Gene Clark with Crosby playing that vital middle role and the 12-string Rickenbacker literally takes off and suddenly people are caring intensely about the words of a song. It really is Dylan's breakthrough. The other song that's interesting isn't a Dylan song, but is a cover beyond Gene Clark's very interesting work on the album. Gene Clark's songs tended to be more classically about the loss of love, more poppy, more accessible, um, but very interesting for all that, quite sophisticated. But the other song that I really like beyond Mr. Tambourine Man is The Bells of Rimney, which is Pete Seeger. They're covering, again, the other giant of folk rock, Dylan's mentor, Pete Sing Seeger, who wrote a song about a coal mining, typically folk song, about a coal mining disaster that had occurred in Wales. And George Harrison absolutely loved this song, um, absolutely loved that, and begins copying some of the birds. They hang out together when the Beatles come to L.A., and, and he buys a 12, George Harrison buys a 12-string Rickenbacker and begins copying McGuinn's guitar riff, If I Needed Someone, a great early Harrison song, um, really is copying some of the riffs of the Birds and, and, and McGuinn. So you see this already on Rubber Soul, one of the Beatles' most influential albums. But The Bells of Rimney is this quite spare folk song in the way that Seeger does it, but the Birds jazz it up. They give it this incredibly complicated harmony. The final at the, at the, at the end of the song to me is one of the most beautiful sounds in rock. So stop and listen to The Bells of Rimney. And the final harmony, when Crosby's voice is added to that of McGuinn and Clark, is something that you'll never forget. I've heard it probably a hundred times, and it still sends shivers down my spine. And it really draws out the pathos of the coal mining disaster, but allows for these pop set sensibilities. So it isn't just Mr. Tambourine Man, and it isn't just Dylan covers. It's folk rock. It's taking the, the, the caring about the words and social matters and putting it to the pop music that the birds were so excited about because of Hard Day's Night. Um, it's probably it's perhaps the greatest debut album ever, um, and it's the evolution of rock itself into folk rock, that one of the strands of rock going forward is going to be folk rock. The birds will also be involved in the inventing of psychedelia. They also will be involved with Graham Parsons later on um, in Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and then later in the inventing of country rock, the Birds are just this incredibly restless, inventive band. Um, and after, amazingly, really after 5D, their third, the third record, they don't have any hit records anymore. The, the golden period really only lasts from 65 to 68. And you could even argue it's the first two records that really do it. Eight Miles High, which was the single on, on, on 5D, the third record, has limited play because of the obvious drug references and the fact that McGuinn becomes fascinated with jazz and John Coltrane and tries to do very successfully, does a riff of Coltrane. But they get more esoteric. They get more interested in inventing and less interested in being this pop phenomenon. This passes from the scene. Really, it's only these first two folk rock records that cross over into huge commercial play 
Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, but at the height of their game here, with all the classic members there, and I would argue the secret sauce is Gene Clark, um, really, you know, living up to people like Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan in these first two records. McGuinn, the virtuoso player. Crosby, this great harmonic genius, an underrated Chris Hillman and Mike Clark looking cooler than anybody this side of Brian Jones. In Mr. Tambourine Man, you have rock heading off in an entire direction. They invented an entire genre for rock. Later on, the birds are to do this along with other bands for psychedelia and also for country rock. But really, it's folk rock, Mr. Tambourine Man, and this unbettered debut album. It really is why you must listen to this. Thank you very much. I love to do the birds justice. And I guarantee you today when I'll be shaving at the end of the day, as I do, I'll be listening to something and up will come Mr. Tambourine Man. And I'll think of our community as sing, 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 sing along with David Crosby, trying to hit that elusive middle part that he's so brilliant at and I'm so terrible at, but, but it's not for one of trying. Um, the next album you're going to listen to, I think we're going to move over to later British Invasion Group, a concept album that I love, an incredibly underrated band, The Zombies, and their concept album, Odyssey and Oracle, that became ironically a huge hit, but only after it had sunk initially and the group had disbanded. Uh, many, many years later, Quite recently, I think it was in the late 20-teens or 2020s, the Zombies actually got together and for the first time live played the whole record, which is a great joy. But we're going to look at Odyssey and Oracle next, Chamber Rock, as it was called at the time, and one of the great underrated bands of the 60s, the Zombies, who not only sang beautifully, but this concept album, I think, is every bit as good as classics like Sergeant Peppers. That's a bold claim to make. So listen to me make the case for our next The Culture. For those of you who haven't subscribed, and so many of you have, and we're grateful, please do so now. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70 we need to keep me cranking these out while I keep the book going. And again, last best hope, today the Washington Examiner is going to run its review, which starts our reviews, and I'll keep you up to date, our community, as the book moves along. But we're just gearing up um, the PR campaign. We did, of course... The podcast for The Security Dilemma, which went great. The book hit on the charts in the UK already. And we're looking for now we're going to try to conquer America, much like the Beatles and the Stones. The first salvo in this ongoing war will be the Washington Examiner. Uh, but we have seven or eight other podcasts and reviews coming up in the next couple of weeks. And then we're really going to hit the whole blanket, the whole country with a series of radio reviews. And we'll keep you abreast of everything going on. But if you haven't bought the book yet, now is the ideal time. Just go on to Amazon. It's available everywhere. We're off to a great start. Very, very excited that someone someday may do a podcast saying books you must read. And there we will be about making realism the dominant voice in the GOP and hopefully in the United States. Take care, everybody. And on to the zombies. <laughs>